0: Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was left at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not custom of the Romans to go up to anyone before the accused met the accusers, face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for their decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you very much, Brian. And uh, thank you. Uh, Kirk and Andre for that. That was uh, really meaningful, and I appreciate that, and uh, um, I know that was a little difficult for Andre to do, but uh, he found the courage to do that. Uh, God is so good, and his story is really wonderful, and I and I just am glad that you got to hear a little bit of it. Um, if you would please turn to Acts chapter 25. Um, what Brian read this morning, as you know, we've been uh, we've been going through big chunks of the book of Acts at a time. We're about done, uh, two more weeks after this, um, but it, not only are we going to go through what Brian read this morning, but also we're going to go through all of uh, 26, chapter 26 as well. A um, couple things uh, before we get started, just um, uh, just, just, remember that it's, uh, wow, I can't believe that we're all here today. Uh, if you didn't know, yesterday was yet another day that people had predicted that Jesus was coming and it was the end of the world. I don't know if you heard that. Um, it's just another one of these people who's making these predictions. And again, every time somebody says that to me, I just say Matthew 24, 36. No one knows the day or the hour, not even Jesus himself at that time. Um, and it's funny because uh, I, I mentioned this to somebody else this morning. They said, oh, no, 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 the guy, the guy pulled up uh, you know, last second you know, on Friday. He said, wait, wait, wait. And I think I had to redo it and recalculate it. It's not going to be tomorrow. <laughs> right. Okay. It's, it, it's just amazing. Understand, these guys don't know, and it's just uh, I've, I've preached on this before. It's just a way to make money. So there's a lot easier ways to make money in ministry, and I can help you out with that if you want to know. So anyway, I'm kidding about that. Um, So there's that. We're here. Maybe we're not saved. Maybe that's why we're here. You guys ready for me to move on? Yeah, okay. All right. So here you go. Something a little bit more serious. Uh, Cody and Ben and Iyasu are in Ethiopia right now. We've been receiving... Uh, emails from them when they have internet access, and I even got a text this morning from Cody, which I didn't know you could do, but apparently if you have an iPhone, there's things that you can do that you didn't know about. So um, got a text. They're doing really well, so just keep praying for them. So uh, before we jump into it, let me pray for them again. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for how you call and equip people. We thank you for Kirk and Andre and how you've called and equipped them. Uh, We thank you for uh, how you've uh, equipped Redemption Arcadia in the many ways that we are um, being turned outward by the gospel to, to serve refugees and, and prisoners and uh, foster care and adoption uh, and many of the other things that we do. Uh, God, thank you for uh, the ministry that we do to our own family here. I'm thinking of one person right now who's who's had just a young person who's had very serious um, health issues and yet this community has just rallied around her to help her and to and to take care of her I, I i i am thankful for the way you call and equip us to do that uh and of course for the guys who are in ethiopia the calling uh the tremendous uh courage you give them to be able to do what they're doing the connections they're making um how they're they're very busy they're not getting very much sleep Uh, There's times when they're even in danger and and uh, I'm just thankful that you've called them pray that you would again just continue to protect them and provide for them um, and and help to uh, uh, Make them a blessing and allow them to be blessed by this trip and God We're going to give you all the glory for that. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen So we are continuing in in the book of Acts and uh, if you go back a few weeks As we've been covering the book of Acts, you know that Paul was arrested in the temple uh, a few weeks back on some trumped-up charges, and now he's still in custody. And now, uh, chronologically in the book of Acts, it's two years later after he was arrested, uh, and he's just been sitting around in prison waiting for the next thing to happen. He's had many opportunities to present his defense uh, and today is his last of his defense speeches. It's the last time that we'll see Paul get up uh, in a court uh, situation or circumstance and present what we might call his defense. And yet what's interesting is, is his defense is never about him getting out of prison. It's always about pointing people to Jesus, which I just find absolutely fascinating. Even after two years, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't make the case of, hey, I just got to get out of here. So whatever I need to say, I'm going to say it. Um, and, and and the oddity, of course, is that at this point, everyone who has heard him speak, um, even, even as he just points people to Jesus, everyone, except for the Jews who are emotionally out of control about Paul, everyone else is looking at Paul saying, he hasn't done anything wrong. Why is he in prison? He hasn't broken any laws. And here, this is an important distinction. Um, it's not that he's not guilty. There's a difference between not guilty And innocent if you understand you you can find somebody not guilty it doesn't necessarily mean they haven't done anything Uh, it just means that you didn't have enough evidence it's not that he's not guilty it's that he's totally innocent he has not broken any law it's just a, a religious dispute with the Jews here's what Paul is guilty of though here's what we know he's guilty of obedience to God faith in the gospel proclaiming the lordship of Jesus responding to God's call on his life, and loving and serving others. If you were to present those charges against Paul, he'd say, yep, guilty. And in fact, last week we heard him say, and if that is an executable defense, then let's have at it. Let's go ahead and get this thing over with. If, if responding to God, being obedient to God, proclaiming Jesus, and loving others... If that's really worth killing me for, then let's have at it. I am guilty of those things. But even though he's really innocent of any law breaking, and the Roman law would clearly say that he should be let go at this point, the circumstances dictate that he stays in custody. And he's even appealed his case now to Rome. That's a common thing that a Roman citizen can do if they don't think they're getting a fair shake. In their uh, local tribunal, they can appeal to Rome and they can actually have their case heard before Caesar. So now he's waiting to be sent uh, to Caesar. And as he's waiting, next week he gets on, we'll see that he gets on the boats to go to Rome. But as he's waiting to go to Caesar, uh, we have King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Some historians call her his wife, and we'll talk about that. Um, They come in to hear what Paul has to say which is very interesting because in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 where Jesus appears to Paul and and calls Paul into ministry and converts him to Christianity uh, in verse 15 Jesus specifically said you are going to proclaim the gospel you're going to proclaim me to kings and now here comes King Agrippa it took 25 30 years for this to come true but now he's gonna proclaim the gospel to King Agrippa. And we'll explain how the king works with the Roman Empire and all that. Uh, What what is also interesting is that then, uh, he's gonna get on a boat and he's gonna go to Rome and eventually he's gonna stand before Caesar, who is ostensibly the king of Rome, the Roman Empire, and he's gonna proclaim the gospel to him uh, as well. So here's the big idea. The big idea is this. Christ, the true hope of the world, is not always received, is not always received, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, here's how, I, I read Tony Ranke's latest book, he's a pastor and author, I love the book, it was really good, but here's how he says it in this book, if you follow Jesus, the world will unfollow you, if you follow Jesus, the world will unfollow you, most of the time, so let me go back and just a lot of reading today but let's go back there's some things in the there are some things in the in the text that we need to just be seeing and pointing out. So starting in verse 13 of chapter 25. Now when some days had passed Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted by Festus. Festus is the Roman governor. And as they stayed there many days Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying there is a man left prisoner by Felix the guy who preceded me as the governor. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. They said, we want to kill Paul. Here's the evidence. Let's kill him. And I answered them. Festus did the right thing. He said, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. I'm not going to execute somebody unless he gets to face you guys. So, when they came together here, so they all came to Caesarea, they, they took the 62 mile walk to Caesarea. I made do, no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal, so he became the judge at that point, and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stu- stood up, they brought no charge in Paul's case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at at, at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be put on uh, and, and be tried there regarding these charges. And Paul said, No, that's not gonna work for me. They're just gonna kill me if I go down there. But when Paul but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, "He, you will hear Paul. So here's another Herod. Another Herod. Agrippa, as a matter of fact. This is the great-grandson of the Herod in the Gospels who killed all the babies when Jesus was born. So there is some lineage there. And he's called the king... Um, but what it is, it was, it was this sort of special uh, uh, position or title that was given a particular person that had many of the same rights as a Roman governor, but he was called king because the Jews always had a king, like King David. And so he was called by the Romans and by the Jews, the king of the Jews. So his area were, were the Jewish people. But he had to work with the Roman government, and there were certain rights and powers that he had, but ultimately he was um, in submission to the Roman government. It was, it was almost sort of like um, a, an appointment that was just to sort of mollify the Jews, that they had somebody uh, over them. But he was pious and he was very well studied in Judaism. So he understood Judaism. He understood the prophets and the law very well. So Paul's kind of licking his lips, thinking if I can get to this guy, um, maybe he'll understand what's really going on. Um, He also had the power at the time to to appoint the chief priest for the uh, Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. So that does give you some indication he had a lot of power. Uh, There is also some thought, although uh, we're not 100% sure, but many historians say they also thought that even at this point, he might have had the power to release Paul, if he he so desired to have Paul released, because apparently this was just a religious dispute, and so maybe he could have done that. But Paul had appealed, so that really muddies those waters. And then he comes with Bernice. If you read the history books, many of the historians actually call Bernice uh, Herod Agrippa's wife. She is not. She is his sister. Um, Bernice is a two-time widower. Uh, she had two husbands and had lost them both, but was Herod Agrippa's constant, constant companion. They were. Uh, they were a power couple. They were always seen in public together so much so that people began to think that they were, there was an incestuous relationship going on between them. And, and, and some people started to call her his wife. Uh, in fact, if you ever saw the movie Gladiator, it is thought that the relationship between Commodus and his sister Lucilla was modeled after this Agrippa and Bernice. So uh, just a little pop culture in there for you. They were like the ultimate power couple at the time, though, and they came with the pomp and the circumstance that a power couple's egos sort of demanded. Now, Festus had a problem, and this is why he's bringing them in. He didn't know re- what to write to the Roman court about Paul. He doesn't he have anything that, that's indictable to write about Paul, so he feels a little bit foolish at this time, and remember last week I said, Part of the reason why he feels foolish is because he knew Paul was innocent, but he was keeping him in prison because he was hoping for a payoff. Now, Paul is essentially called his bluff, so he's got to figure out what to write to the, to the uh, Caesar so he doesn't look uh, foolish. The Jews, of course, are angry because they say Paul had brought Gentiles into the temple, and, and they're angry because he's proclaiming Jesus has raised, been raised from the dead. But legally, here's the deal. Paul had not broken any, uh, any Roman law whatsoever. But Paul had appealed, so essentially he's going to be going to uh, Rome. So here comes the power couple. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. This was a big deal. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. Maybe you'll have some insight for me to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yeah, that's fairly unreasonable. Um, Verses 25 through 27, as I said last week, uh, Paul could have not appealed to Rome, and eventually he probably would have been okay and released. But I believe, and many others do, that God determined for Paul to go to Rome and to, go, to, to go to Rome uh, as a prisoner in chains. Paul always wanted to go. This is the irony and the beauty of this situation. Paul always wanted to go to Rome. He felt called to go to Rome. He believed the Holy Spirit had called him to go to Rome. He thought that this was going to be part of his mission, that he would come to Jerusalem, uh, kind of get refreshed, packed up, pack up, raise some money, and he would go to Rome as a missionary, but as a free man, but he's not going to go to Rome uh, that way. Rome was on his bucket list, but, and God said, okay, we're going to fill your bucket, but we're going to do it my way. Uh, God says, my way is actually going to give you way more opportunities to present the gospel to way more people in, in places where you never could have imagined yourself being able to present the gospel of jesus christ to you have your plans for how you're going to do ministry and it's going to be good i have my plans for how you're going to do ministry and it's going to be magnificent it's going to be better than anything you could have ever uh, thought of and so you're going to go in chains under house arrest But you're going to have access to all of these people. You're going to be going and doing ministry under duress, Paul. That's how you're going to be doing ministry. I got to tell you, I run into people today, a lot of people. um, This will sound a little bit judgmental, but I hear this a lot. Uh, People who say, you know, I could do a lot more for Jesus if I just didn't have this job. Or if I, just, if I just didn't have, and I, and I understand, jobs are a reality. I, I, I'm not saying that's, a, I'm not, please, tomorrow morning, don't walk in and quit. That's not what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> but if I just didn't have this job, I could do more for Jesus. If I just didn't have this health challenge, I could do more for Jesus. If I didn't have this money challenge, if I didn't have this spouse, I could do more. If I didn't have these kids, I could do more for Jesus. I got a degree from ASU. I could do a lot more for Jesus if I had gone somewhere else to school. (laughs) Hey, I went to ASU. It's okay. Whatever it is, if if I was just gifted differently, look at the way those people are gifted. Why hasn't God gifted me that way? God has gifted you in an important way. Quit worrying about everybody else's giftedness and start figuring out your own. And then, under duress... Life is duress. Have you figured that out yet? Life is duress. That's my next t-shirt. Life is duress. The <laughs> Be a bestseller. And, and here's the problem with this, I, I think. And this is hard because I fall into this trap too. I mean, every minister, everybody does. Who are we relying on when we start saying things like that to do the ministry? Ourselves. And what does Psalm 127 say about if the Lord does not build the house, the workers labor in vain. If you're trying to build this thing on your own power, you're going to labor in vain, and it's going to be pretty miserable, and you're going to add duress to the duress. So we count on the filling of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrected Christ. So here we go, 26, 1 through 8. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. If you've been with us for this whole axe thing, this stretching out the hand or motioning with his hand, I think we finally figured out what it is. It's this. Stretched it out. Kind of a yoga move. You do a yoga move in the first century Mediterranean culture, that means you're about ready to say something, okay? He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. So is he sucking up or is he actually kind of laying his cards down and saying, finally, somebody who's going to understand this and get this? Because even Festus says this thing about this guy, Jesus, who's supposed to be dead, but now he's alive, you know, now he's coming to a guy who might really understand it. But also I think there's a part of him that he's, he's being respectful. He's, he's building up Agrippa a little bit so that he'll hear him especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And then this line I love. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. (laughs) Paul is so tired of having his defense speeches interrupted before he's done. So at this point he says, please, please just let me finish. I just want to finish. Please hear me out first. Withhold judgment until I'm done. He doesn't make it. I'll just let you know. By the way, Agrippa is not the one who interrupts him. Festus ends up interrupting him this time. So he says in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They, they, They know who I am. And here it is. Again, they know I am a good, faithful, and obedient Jew. I haven't done anything wrong. I've done exactly What the law and the prophets said I should do if I meet the Messiah, the Savior. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. I was a great Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now I stand here on trial because of, and now watch, three times he talks about this hope. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our Father. The promise that there would be a king who does eventually come. A king greater than David. A Messiah. A savior. The Christ. In fact, this king is going to be the suffering servant. The servant who ends up getting whipped and crucified. That's Isaiah 52 and 53. This is the promise of God. He says, this is where my hope is. And the hope has come. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And as for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. This This is what they're accusing me of. It's written in our sacred writings that for centuries we have counted on and proclaimed. I'm being a faithful and obedient Jew, and that's why I'm on trial. And then he says this. Why is it it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why would you think that would be incredible? How is that outside of the realm of reality? And, And here's what he's saying, and we have to wrestle with this too. If there is a God, if there is a God, now my assumption is that there is, that's what I'm up here proclaiming, yours may not be that. But if there is a God, let's just, if there is a God, for God to be God, he must be all-powerful, all-knowing. There cannot be, as one theologian says, a single maverick molecule in the universe outside of his control. He is sovereign. So if there is a God, he can raise people from the dead. He can raise his son from the dead. Why is that so implausible? If there is a God, and you believe that there is a God. He's saying that to the Jews. He's saying, and you believe that there is a God. How could you possibly not think that this is is possible? Even the Gentiles believe. They don't have our scriptures. And I proclaim Jesus to them, and they believe. That God raised Jesus, even the Gentiles who don't have our traditions and our writings and the law of Moses and the prophets, even they believe, but you don't believe. You profess to believe, but you don't. How is this possibly outside of that that realm? That's our hope, by the way. He says, hope, hope, hope. That's our hope. uh, 9 through 11. I myself, he says, now I get it. Because I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was there when Stephen was martyred, casting his vote and collecting the cloaks. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. So he punished them and then tried to make them blaspheme against the law and against the prophets. And in raging fury, here he's confessing, I was, I was in a rage. My fury was born of a rage against these people. And against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. And that's what started him on the road to Damascus in, in Acts chapter 9. So his argument continues, starting in verse 12. And now we get another iteration of his conversion story on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. There's one detail that's added in here that we don't get before that I'll mention. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. I had the letters that gave me the authority to go into the synagogues there, find these people who are worshiping Jesus, pull them out, bring them back to Jerusalem, put them into prison and execute them. I had that authority. At midday, O king, I saw... On the way, a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, for that was his name at the time, Paul's name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'll come back to that. That's the additional little phrase that he gives. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and now, and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people, delivering you from this situation right now, and even from the Gentiles, because there were some Gentiles who were not happy with them, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may... Turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How about it? Have we turned from darkness to light? This world's a dark place, man. And Jesus is the light. The light that shines. Have we turned from darkness to light? Have we turned from Satan to God? I don't worship Satan. Satan's in our midst. The power and the struggle of the forces of darkness are with us, and it's a a struggle. And when we sin, we may not say it, but here you go. I'll just personalize this so you don't have to take ownership. I'll take ownership. When I sin, when I sin, I am giving into the power of Satan and not the power of God. I may not say it, and by the way, I have all kinds of ways I can justify my sin. You haven't even begun to think about ways to wiggle out of your sin yet the way that I have. I went to ASU. <laughs> but when we give into that, we're giving into Satan and not into the power of God. Have have you been forgiven of your sins? My sins don't need forgiving. Yeah, they do. All of ours do. That's what reconciles us to God verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to great and small, small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Just following the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. So verses 12 through 18 there, Paul tells his story. Paul tells his story. Here's my story. Here's my story with Jesus as Jesus called him to. Jesus says, go tell your story. That's what he called him to. He said, go tell your story. You're going to tell it to the Jews. You're going to tell it to the Gentiles. You're going to suffer for it, but go tell, and you're going to tell it to kings. So go tell your story. So here, here's the application for us. Tell your story. Just tell your story. I, 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 don't, I don't have enough education. I don't know enough. I don't know the scriptures well enough. I, I need to know more. Do you know Jesus? Yes. Do you know your story with Jesus? Yes. Tell your story. That's what people want to hear. They don't don't want you to go on Jeopardy and run the Bible category. That's not what they're looking for. They want to know if you know Jesus. They want to know what's important to you, not what you know. They want to know what's important to you. So just tell your story. In verse 14, Paul includes that detail we hadn't encountered yet. You're kicking against the goads, Paul. It's a very common, well-known expression in both religious and secular philosophical circles. A goad was a powerful stick that farmers and ranchers used to prod beasts of burden and keep them on track and on task. And sometimes an ox, a beast of burden, would kick against the goads. They didn't like it. And and to kick against the goads meant that they were rebelling against their master. It meant that they were, here you go, but it meant that they were resisting the inevitable because the master always wins with the goad. The one with the goad always wins. The beast of burden is fighting a fight that the beast cannot win against the goad. The master always wins. So in religious context, the goad is God's will. Paul could have kicked against God's will, but it wouldn't have done him any good. He was going to be the Apostle Paul. That was determined before the foundations of the earth were told in his letter to the church in in Ephesus. This was decided before I was even born, that I was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. We all kick against the goad, don't we? We're all kicking against the inevitable. Even as believers, we kick against the inevitable. We're kicking against the golds. And then that last bit there, 19 through 23, verses 19 through 23, I think this is key. And this is where uh, he gets ramped up and amped up a little bit that leads to that point where he's going to be interrupted again. But he makes six really important points. Number one, he says, I'm obedient to God. Is that really worthy of condemnation? In some cultures, it is. Here's the second thing. God has faithfully stood with me. You see, did you see that? Isn't that amazing? This isn't about me. God has faithfully stood with me. He says, the law and the prophets, your own scriptures that you know, specifically you, Agrippa, you know, they testify clearly to the reality of Jesus. What's the problem? Number four, he says, by the way, Jesus is for all, not just Israel. Jesus is for all, small and great slave and free men, Jew and Gentile, men and women. It doesn't matter. That's in Galatians. Fifth, he says Christ is our identity. He says our identity is now rooted in the Messiah, the one who saves and redeems us. That's our identity. Our identity is not in our race, though that is important. Our identity is not in our gender. Our identity is not in our sexuality. Our identity is not in our education. Our identity is not in our vocation. Our identity is not in our culture. It is in Christ and Christ alone. That's where our identity is. And the last one, you look at verse 20. He reminds us once again that works are the result of grace in our lives, not the reason for the grace in our lives. If we had to work for grace, then it wouldn't be grace. Our works in the gospel are a response to the grace that God has given us. He's forgiven us. He's made us whole. He's reconciled us to him. He's made us righteous and holy. He is sanctifying us. And then we get to spend eternity with him in heaven. And as a result of that grace that we didn't do anything for, that we were not worthy of, we respond in gratitude and in joy. That's the truth of that. Anybody know? We have a treadmill at home. Anybody have a treadmill at home? You know, you work out? No, but Nobody? Seriously? Are we the only? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Bunch of liars. <laughs> How many of you go to LA Fitness and use the treadmill there? Yeah, a few more. Okay, alright. Anyway, you know what a treadmill is, right? We have one at home. Uh, Jackie prefers the treadmill outside running. I use it when the weather is really bad, all that stuff. Okay. You know, what the, you know what a treadmill was originally used for? Anybody know that? Exactly. It was used as punishment. Some of you are going, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A treadmill was originally used for punitive pu- punishment in English prisons to make prisoners pay their debt. Is there a picture behind me? I hope so, yeah. To make prisoners pay their debt to society. Here's the problem with the treadmill, though, if you go in and read about this. The prisoners on the treadmill, they never know when it is that they finally paid their debt to to society. They never know how much is enough. They're just on this treadmill. Is it enough yet? Don't know. You're just on the treadmill, working, 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 making yourself worthy enough for society. Work, 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 work. This is the opposite of the grace of God. Are you on the treadmill of God? Are you trying to work your way to God? Are you trying to pretty yourself up and make yourself worthy enough? My mom, before she came to Christ in her 80s, my mom used to tell me for years, I'm just not good enough to be saved. Mom! (laughs) Please, I know you never listen to your kid. Parents don't listen to their kids. Would somebody else please tell my mom? She's, it doesn't matter. She needs to receive the grace of God, and she finally did. She finally got it. The Holy Spirit opened her eyes. When are we, here you go, if you're on the treadmill of God, when are you going to get off his treadmill and just receive and enjoy his grace? Next paragraph, and as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, in other words, he cut him off and interrupted him, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. chains. My desire is that everybody become like me, a believer in Jesus Christ, with eternal salvation and the power of sanctification today, except you don't have to have the chains. I'll stay in the chains. That's what he's saying. And and yeah, what, what we proclaim is hard to hear and it's hard to believe. That's exactly why God has to be the one to grant ears to hear and eyes to see. It is hard to hear this. Tim Keller says this all the time. The gospel is offensive because it tells people that you have a need that you cannot meet. That's very offensive to the worldly mind. I can fix this, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'll figure it out. No. And there's really nothing covert about Christianity either. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, did you see the way Jesus ministered in the Gospels? One scholar I read described it this way. Jesus brings the blunt. Jesus brings the blunt. I was out running with the guys this morning, this morning, this morning. This guy was talking about what, uh, when he was getting into sales in the marketplace, what, what his mentor and manager once said to him. It's a corny little poem, but you'll get the gist of it. He said, here you go, Mark. He, he was telling him, he's saying, you know, you're a little bit too quiet. You, you, you need to amp up the energy a little bit if you're going to sell. And he, and he gave him this poem. He who whispers down a well about what he has to sell will never make as many dollars as he who climbs a tree and hollers. <laughs> we proclaim the, the good news of Jesus. We proclaim it. And, and verse 27 is pretty clever on Paul's part. Uh, he doesn't ask Agrippa, the man well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, if he believes in Jesus. Instead, he asks a, a, a question that's a little bit more difficult now for Agrippa to navigate around. He says, do you believe the prophets? That's a little harder for Agrippa to navigate around. Hey, do you believe what you profess to believe? You believe the prophets. You believe the law. Do you really believe it? Do you believe what you profess that you believe in? And Agrippa gives him that lame, oh, it's just too soon excuse. And then Paul answers him absolutely correctly. Salvation is up to God. So he's going to save whenever and however and whomever he wants. The problem with you, Agrippa is that you're not willing to let God open your eyes. It's right here, right in front of you. Everything you've wanted, it's right here. And I'm presenting it to you. And then I think this is a big deal. I mentioned this earlier. Paul had this wonderful opportunity before a person who possibly had the power to release him. But what does he talk about? Where does he go? He doesn't ask for his freedom. Instead, he pleads the case for Christ. Christ. Paul is speaking not ultimately for his defense or his case or his release, but for those who hear him to be saved. He's saying, I'm I'm fine going back into my cell when I'm done here. I just want you guys to be saved. Here you go. Paul cares way more for the eternal salvation of others than for the temporal rescue of himself. Paul cares way more for the eternal salvation of others than for the temporal rescue of himself because he knows that he's already rescued eternally. That's a a really mature faith. Wraps up, last three verses. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and uh, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa wasn't going to mess with that. But he said he could have been set free. Paul's appeal to Rome was not necessary if he just waited it out. But God, but God. I I, I find that Paul speaks in a way that all of us should at least think about, noodle on from time to time, consider. He speaks boldly and bluntly and faithfully, but he does it with great love and great respect. Here's how one Christian author describes it. He says, for for Christians to speak truth in love, it means we need to fire the gun without pulling the trigger. Now, think about that. Some of you are like, okay, what exactly does that mean? Here you go. We We need to be able to present the gospel in such a way that God works. It's not dependent upon us, but in such a way that we don't offend people. Here you go. We need to be able to fire the gun, have the results of what the gun does without pulling the trigger, without the violence of what the gun does. Because we can get pretty violent when we present the good news of Jesus from time to time, right? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, that looks really good. (laughs) Okay. So we need to be able to fire the gun without pulling the trigger. Think about Jesus on the cross. There's the ultimate in firing the gun without pulling the trigger. He fires the gun three days later, never pulled the trigger. He could have pulled that trigger when they were nailing him to the cross. He's God. He had the power to pinch their little heads off as they're nailing him to the cross. Walk away. See ya. He didn't do that. And that is where our hope lies. That's where our hope lies, is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the promise of the prophets. It's the promise of Moses. That's the promise. That's where our hope lies. Again, again, look at um, 26, 6 through 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope... I am accused by the Jews, O oh king. Why would it be thought incredible that God raises? people? That's our hope. Why do we need hope? Because things are broken. Because of sin. We, we desperately need hope. Things are not the way they're supposed to be sin has wrecked everything and that has given us a need for hope You know in Genesis chapter 2 before Genesis 3 came there was no need for hope If you walked up to Adam and Eve and talked to them, where's your hope lie? They would have been like I have no idea what you're talking about I don't have any need for hope I've got everything I need Okay And there's a difference uh, There is a difference between worldly hope and godly hope and this is why it's so hard for us Because when we hear that there is the hope of God I'm t- I understand. It's, it's easy to be skeptical. I don't know. I don't know about that, because I've, I've hoped for many, many things. I've hoped for many things, and they haven't come true. Because worldly hope, there is no guarantee. That's, we hope for it without a guarantee. I hope I can get accepted to this school. I hope that I can make it through this interview. I hope that I get the promotion. I hope that when I ask her out, she says yes. I hope he doesn't ask me out. (laughs) How common is it for our hopes to be dashed? And so, when somebody stands here and and proclaims to you the hope in Christ, it's understandable that we're going to be a little bit skeptical. We, We are taught by life circumstances to be skeptical, it's just natural. That's why what Jesus did had to be magnificent. That's why he had to die and be raised. He couldn't just preach a sermon. He couldn't just say, I absolve you. He had to do something that is hard to believe. He had to do something that was supernatural. And that's what gives us our hope. That's The cross and the resurrection tell us that the brokenness of the world does not have the final say. Jesus has the final say. And that is a hope worth living for and worth talking about with others. And, and, and it's not that the gospel will always be well received. You can count on it. Everywhere. Everywhere Jesus comes to save by grace, sin rebels. Sin will rebel. Everywhere Jesus goes to save by grace. But it's our call in the midst of that to proclaim and to love and to serve in light of that hope. That's what Paul's doing. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace, and your truth. We thank you for the work that you did through Paul and the incredible uh, journey that he's on and all the things that we can learn from it. And we just, uh, we just pray right now that we, would, that we would grab a hold of that hope, that hope that you give us through your promises, that hope that is real, even though we don't necessarily and can't necessarily see it right now. We pray that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart that responds to all that you do for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.